0: Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Cotjuara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. A year ago, political and corporate leaders and, and market participants around the world contemplated what the buildup of Russian troops along Ukraine's borders meant. And while the Biden administration and the US intelligence community warned that a Russian invasion was likely, many were still taken by surprise when it actually occurred. And so shaken by yet another seemingly low probability risk made manifest, many attempted to get ahead of the next crisis. Given the temptation to always, you know, fight the so-called last war, the blatant violation of the sanctity of international borders led us to taking a significant influx of calls earlier this year wondering if Taiwan was next. In our view, that risk remains low in the near term, and it, but it should not distract from the risks that are still emanating from the war in Ukraine, such as ongoing disruption and volatility and energy and other commodities, and fiscal and political risks in Europe. And of course, the trajectory in US-China relations is not only about sovereignty and territorial disputes, but about the access to and control over the critical products and resources of our time, in particular, semiconductors and the refined metals, minerals, and elements required for the sustainable energy transition. So today, the Taneo Geopolitical Advisory Team has issued its annual Global Year Ahead piece, What to Watch in 2023. Um, And I'm joined today by two of my colleagues to discuss the team's findings and analysis. And I should mention that early next year, we'll, we'll do a call focused on uh, the U.S. political scene going into, into 2023, but today we're going to focus on the international picture. Wolf Pickley is here. He's co-president of Teneo Political Risk Advisory. He's our director of research uh, and a senior member of our Europe team, and he joins today from London. Emily Stromquist is a managing director and a senior member of the uh, Political Risk Advisory practice as well. She focuses particularly on the geopolitics of energy markets. She joins from Washington, D.C., and and to, with today's broadcast, she actually joins the five timers club. Um, so uh, yeah, congratulations for that, um, Emily. Um, so let's let's start. Let's start with the biggest geopolitical event of the year, uh, which is going to carry on obviously into well into next year, and that's the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing war. Maybe Emily, I could start with you. Here it is. We're we're entering entering winter. Um, the ground is starting to 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 freeze. We have seen this conflict kind of evolve over the last uh, over the last couple of months. Um, you know, the, uh, the 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 sort of uh, you know force on force combat has has shifted more to this kind of onslaught um, of aerial bombardment from uh, from the Russian side onto uh, onto Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. Um, but but uh, and that comes in the wake of of Ukraine sort of uh, turning the tide in the war and winning and winning back territory. Um, But there are new elements of this battle. We have seen uh, Ukraine sort of MacGyver, I guess you could call it, uh, uh, some of the weaponry technology they've got and strike deep into Russian territory, which creates sort of an unpredictable um, new trajectory in this conflict. But what are you seeing and what do you expect in the next couple of months here uh, as we go into winter and ultimately head toward the spring thaw which will get messy again but it seems like there is for political reasons with the solidarity of the west on the line and so on that Ukraine is going to want to keep pushing uh during this winter period so what are you what are you seeing right now
1: yeah, I mean, look, I think you you touched on a lot of the big themes we're seeing out of, uh, out of the war at the moment. But I mean, digging in on some of this a little bit more, you know, I think there was undue optimism about the fact that Russia managed, or sorry, that Ukraine managed to regain over 50 percent of the territory that Russia captured since the beginning of the war. But I think what is, you know, abundantly evident is that Russia is digging in and it's really not looking for that exit ramp at the moment. Uh, the war is going to continue to be shaped as we move into 2023 by key elements such as political will in both countries, access to economic resources and and to uh, financial resources, and then as well the military capabilities. And, you know, I think the fact is that you need all three, and the loss on either side of any one of these elements would ultimately, you know, result in, in either side probably having to make painful concessions. Russia has, you know, to many surprise, uh, experienced pretty humiliating defeats on the battlefield, and this has pushed it to become more sporadic, more punitive in its its approach, with very damaging missile strikes that are really targeting, uh, you know, convincing Ukraine that this war is not sort of worth continuing to fight, that it's too painful, too costly for the Ukrainian side. But Ukraine, as you mentioned, on the other hand, has managed to hit strategic targets deeper inside of Russia. And it's, you know, most importantly, continuing to get that financial aid and access to advanced weapons systems from the West. That's really keeping it sort of a a critical um, player in in this conflict. Um, You know, I think because of this, Russia is likely to remain very unpredictable. You know, the more access and support that Ukraine keeps sort of getting to the West is going to just sort of continue to, to spur sporadic behavior by Russia. Uh, There was obviously a lot of saber-rattling about Russia's nuclear capability. You know, this likely remains sort of very back pocket for the time being. But I think something we shouldn't overlook is cyber warfare. I don't think we can underestimate or understate Russia's capabilities on this front um, and and the methods that it can use. So this is certainly something that we'll be keeping an eye on as we move into 2023. Russia has intensified uh, calls for talks, um, for negotiations, but. You know I really think we do have to question how effective that ultimately would be given that you know Russia is questioning Ukrainian sovereignty and views this crisis as as kind of an existential existential struggle with the West. So even if negotiations do proceed and we get some kind of, you know, ceasefire in place, I think this is very slim prospect something like that would would remain particularly with both Zelensky and Putin still in power. Uh, I think that leads to another important point that I'll I'll address as well, which is, um, you know, what is the state of the Russian economy, how long can they sustain this? Uh, You know, Russia is certainly digging in and has set up a wartime economy. I think that speaks highly to their intentions. Um, But sanctions, you know, have roiled supply chains. They've kept the central bank governor uh, Elvira Nebulun very busy, um, you know, initially managing inflation, trying to prevent bank runs, et cetera. But, you know, Russia has demonstrated its sort of mystifying resilience. Um, Oil and gas revenues are playing an incredibly important role, and that's only continuing to grow as other sectors take more of a hit from sanctions. Uh, They're at oil and gas revenues are at record highs. They're currently two-thirds of export revenues and half of budget revenues, give or take. So that's obviously lending some support to the ruble at the moment. And I think, you know, the important... The fact here, and, you know, we can't overstate this enough, um, is that sanctions aren't intended to kind of have an immediate decline in the Russian economy. This is a slow erosion, and there's certainly evidence that that's starting to take root. And I think nowhere more so than in the cutoff um, of Russia to advanced technologies. These are sort of the fundamental element, the core of many of the sort of Russian strategic market segments. Um, You know, as equipment starts to break down, there's not the sort of component pieces that are needed to be able to rebuild a lot of, of these sort of, you know, machinery and equipment that's driving, you know, some of the big Russian industries. So we are, you know, for instance, seeing smuggling networks being set up, but this is sort of, you know, obviously far from sufficient to be able to keep this machine running. So ultimately, you know, particularly given this, you know, sanctions impact cut off to sort of high technologies, component parts, the really big question is going to be how much are these, you know, supposed quote-unquote allies of Russia, um, you know, its foreign friends, going to be able to support Russia in this conflict and give them sort of that extra backstop that they need. It's questions like, you know, China and President Xi Jinping, MBS in Saudi Arabia. And I think there's severe limitations that have become very apparent in these relationships for Russia, nowhere more so probably than that at the SEO meeting in Samarkand in September where it was clear that All of these, you know, supposed allies, these former sort of satellite states of Russia did not really lend any meaningful support to Russia, did not sort of back Russia in this conflict. And I think that was the clear message.
0: Indeed, uh, just a a day or two to go, a day or two ago, there was a um, uh, there was a conference in Paris, right, where 50 countries to send some at least interim aid to reconstruct some of the uh, destroyed energy infrastructure in in Ukraine. And what was interesting about that was the number of countries that haven't supported or taken sides with Ukraine, such as Saudi Arabia and India and and others, but who have also contributed to this. So the symbolism of that was sort of important here uh, as well. I want to pick up on one thing that you were saying, though, and that is with regard, I mean, obviously throughout this conflict and indeed throughout his entire career, there's been You know, it's been a cottage industry to speculate on what drives, motivates and limits Putin's behavior. And one data point that we have had, you know, in the last week as we continue to speculate on what his position is, how strong it is and whether there is any, you know, any meaningful pushback to him within his regime, considering that all normal opponents have either are in exile, in prison or dead. But he canceled his appearance, which has been, you know, uh, a hallmark of his presidential presidency, uh, his marathon press conference that he holds at the end of every year. And he canceled that abruptly this year. What do you what do we what's our sense of Putin right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing that was sort of abundantly clear and has been discussed for a long time, even before this war, is that, you know, as he's he's gotten older, as he's been in power for longer, his sort of tendencies to isolate himself even more have you know, continued to expand. So this is a guy who's up in the morning doing his workout routine, reading you know, the press, and then you know, shutting out sort of a lot of the other noise. Um, you know, I think that's sort of a clear indication that he's not gonna be changing course. He's, he's you know, creating an environment where he can be somewhat immune to opposition. We also don't see by that same token strong opposition inside of Russia, um, I think you know a lot of the people who were probably most opposed to the war had the most to lose from it. If they could afford to, they left. Um, those who remain uh, either, you know are trying to keep a low profile. Or, you know, I think it's also a generational thing. Um, you know, a lot of the younger generation has been overseas much more. They've been educated overseas. There is sort of, particularly in urban centers, that opposition that is there to the war. But compared to sort of this country writ large, this is not sort of sufficient to really challenge this system. There's still plenty who benefit from it. Um, you know, he's <laughs> a, he he remains kind of a strong leader. And unfortunately, we also don't have great access. You know, even sort of Levada polls are sort of one channel that shows the support for, for Putin, but we don't really have great access to clear, transparent information about sort of how that dynamic may have changed throughout this war. One can assume there is more opposition, but it's clearly not, you know, enough right now that that sort of his his sort of position in power is really at stake at the moment.
0: So Wolf, you know, Emily has made this point that, you know, Russia has got this, uh, uh, has, has actually done quite a, um, a good job, essentially, of being able to manage their economy thus far through this crisis, and to be able to continue to drive their war war machine. And they're a little bit less dependent on the material and economic support. They count more on the political support of their uh, of of their allies. On the other hand, Ukraine is highly highly dependent on uh, the support of its uh, allies economically um, and with return, with regards to war material. Uh, in addition to the political support, so let's talk a little bit about the solidarity of the West here. Um, you know, as as we head into uh, in, into next year, um, and that that financial, political, and military support. What do you what do you see on that
2: front? Um, first of all, I would say that the issue of sustaining the war will become even more critical uh, next year. That we have seen over the last ten months or so, and sustaining the war as we already mentioned, is about supplying uh, weapons, ammunition system, and money. And I think on the economic front, that could become even more of an issue for Ukraine. Um, As far as uh, Europe is concerned, here, um, the the, the numbers are very clear. 75% of the weapons are coming from the US, the rest is Europe and other countries. Uh, Europe has taken a bit more of a lead on the economic front. The Commission has been trying now for some time to put together a new package of around um, 18 billion euros for next year, uh, which has been vetoed by a variety of players, but they should, be able, they should be able to clear it before the end of this year. I think the political front uh, in Europe in terms of support of Ukraine will depend very much on how hard will be the winter, uh, basically. Um, and if we start seeing uh, energy blackouts, if we start seeing the economic impact of energy breakouts, uh, we might see a bit more debate about what to do with Ukraine uh, becoming a bit more lively. On the positive side, we don't have election in any of the big uh, EU players next year, so that is certainly helpful. One country to watch, in my view, would be Italy. Uh, The Prime Minister Meloni has taken a very pro-Ukrainian stance, pretty much in continuity with with the Draghi administration, um, and Meloni is still doing well in the polls. Uh, the problem Meloni has is that the two main coalition partners are both generally pro-Russia. Um, so far they've been relatively uh, silent on this front, but if Meloni starts to struggle domestically, especially in terms of polls, uh, then she might have to kind of revisit a bit their position. So of the big countries, certainly um, Italy is the one to watch. In terms of other countries, I guess the debate could become a bit more lively in places like Greece, for example, where there's always been a very strong pro-Russia lobby and where we have election happening next year.
0: So, you know, obviously, you know, as we look into 2023 uh, with this ongoing support question from the in the U.S., that question is going to be about, you know, um, does a Republican takeover of the House portend some sort of change in the, uh, in, you know, in the funding schedule for, for for Ukraine? And we'll get to that in a, in another call. Uh, but as you're pointing out in terms of I mean, the media is always quick to point out any of these fissures between European countries, oftentimes, you know, between Germany and, say, Poland and uh uh, and how much material support and what type of weaponry to give and, and, and so on and so forth. But would you say, when you step back and you know, make sure you're looking at the forest rather than the trees, that in, in general the popular support and the political support um, for, for Ukraine generally remains pretty strong right now?
2: I think, it, 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 I think that's absolutely the case. One potential test to this uh, would be if we have a new, uh, a new inflow of uh, Ukrainian refugees coming into the Poland, the Slovakia, and the Baltics uh, the, the, during the winter, uh, uh, which is basically one of the aims of putting, uh, targeting the energy infrastructure, and not only the civil, larger civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, certain countries are already under intense pressure, even places like Poland, where they, they did an amazing work and uh, job in terms of dealing with the Ukrainian refugees. Um, so that will be potentially again a signpost to monitor. If we have a new wave of refugees, uh, there is a risk, in an environment where the economy in Europe is basically taking a negative turn, that could become more of an issue of political friction.
0: I have a quick question though, on the refugee front because obviously, much was made earlier this year of this, you know, this largest mobilization of uh, of people since World War II in um, in Europe, and. You know there was a lot of hand-wringing over this sort of the welcoming of european countries to ukrainian refugees versus say in sharp start sharp contrast to the refugees from the middle east and, um, and and africa but there was also this difference which was which seemed to be that ukrainians ultimately wanted to go home as soon as the war w- was over but the longer that drags out i mean do you do you is your sense that that remains true or do uh, a lot of the a lot of the refugees think that they would become permanent residents in 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 Western Europe if they could.
2: Yeah, no, I think it remains true. Actually, what we saw over the summer, when uh, in in the good parts of Ukraine, the war was basically not having a material impact on the lifestyle, we saw already refugees leaving the countries that were hosting them and going back. The issue is that now they are returning back to the countries they were hosting them because they realized that they, 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 uh, conducting, carrying out a normal life has become much more difficult, not just because of the weather, but mainly because of the targeting of the infrastructure uh, by the Russian forces. But I think the, the, the whole point, the initial point is still absolutely valid, absolutely
0: so emily wolf brought up this point of one of the key variables on western uh, particularly european support uh continuing for ukraine at the levels that it has is going to be how bad this winter is and so that inevitably brings up the question of energy and i'll get to the big picture of uh, of of global energy markets in a, in a bit but i want to focus a little bit on the european picture here because obviously the embargo against um, uh, waterborne cargos uh, went into place last week. We've got the price cap that has just been initiated, um, and um, you know, and there's another product embargo, I believe, uh, that's going to be coming into uh, into force in early um, in early February. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of these moves would would seem to be you know price positive for oil, but the the sort of the global economic picture and demand picture seems to have continued sort of general downward pressure although i know we've seen a little bit of a bounce in, in oil again uh, late this week but but the key here is to wolf's point is that you know they actually europe went into this winter in a pretty decent condition all things considered with regards to their energy resources because russia actually continued to be a source of energy for most of the year but every molecule that has burned over the course of this winter is going to have to be refilled next year probably without those russian inputs so Talk about the uh, the European energy picture uh, at the moment as you see it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think what surprised everyone was how aggressively Russia or Europe was out there buying up gas, and particularly LNG, at whatever cost in the months sort of leading up to the winter. That put them in a very good position, all said, uh, moving into this winter. I think that's obviously, you know, pretty consensus that that's reduced that immediate risk of gas shortages this winter. Um, you know, their, their storage tanks were at sort of unprecedented highs. Um, you know, and I think the, the bottom line with the um, oil embargo that just came into place in the price cap is that, you know, this is basically net neutral for the time being. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, this price cap ended up saving Europe from a much more damaging consequence where they were looking to sh- to, to cut off basically all shipping and provision of insurance, um, which is primarily coming out of Europe to Russia. Um, About 50% of the shipping was done out of Europe and and, primarily Greece, and then about 95% of the sort of insurance was provided through Europe and particularly UK P&I clubs. It saved Europe and the UK from sort of officially having to cut off all of that with this price cap now in place. So, certainly that was kind of a benefit to to, shipping and financial services in in Europe and the UK, that that sort of that price cap came into place. you know, I think it's, it's a bit curious, this mechanism, because it's come right at a time that it essentially matches the price of more or less Russian crude in the market at the moment. So it's not really the best point to be testing, um, you know, how this is actually going to affect the Russian market and sort of whether that's going to significantly impact the volumes of supplies that we see out there. Uh, Russia was, you know, before the war, exporting about two and a half million barrels per day of uh, crude and feedstocks to Europe. Uh, already, they've managed to reroute about a million barrels per day of this to Asia, primarily. Um, you know, I think there is that question of of what happens to the balance. Certainly, they'll find some buyers. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest restrictions that they're facing is obviously that you know they're offering sort of sovereign guarantees for insurance right now. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this dark fleet that they have, um, a lot of speculation as well that it might only be about 50% of the capacity they actually need to fully compensate for the losses that are going to be sort of driven by this price cap and embargo. Um, and then you know, I think the biggest issue, and this is, is quite an interesting point, is that um, you know, the higher transaction costs are where you know, Russia is really going to be impacted here. And I think that's ultimately going to determine the extent to which. Russia decides to cut more supply and take more off the market. Essentially, if we're looking at $60 per barrel oil, given kind of both the higher costs uh, for for freight and kind of associated risks, we're looking at sort of a $15 to $20 margin that's, that's being associated with these sort of added transaction costs, which leaves Russia with, you know, $40, $45 per barrel that they're actually taking home. So I think, you know, that's going to be a calculation on the Russian side we don't have good visibility yet um, on in terms of, you know, is that going to actually take more off the market? And then you touched on the fact that, you know, we have this lingering um, products embargo, you know, similar type of of situation that comes into place from February. And to my mind, that's a much more important one to be looking at at this point, um, given sort of the importance, particularly of diesel to uh, the economic picture, Um, you know, Europe has been heavily dependent on Russian diesel. They've been buying it up, you know, in, in crazy volumes in the run-up to this embargo coming into place. This is gonna lead to sort of significant tightness in the market and, and Europe increasingly competing for sort of these remaining barrels from the, the US, from the Middle East. So, like crude, this is gonna take time to sort of shift this around, but this is also coming at a time where you know, diesel is, you know, as I said, an important part of, of the European economy. We're looking at, you know, economic erosion and this potentially sort of exacerbating that situation in Europe. So I think this is really an, uh, uh, something to keep an eye on and one where there's even kind of less clarity how the, the diesel picture plays out from February on um, and, the you know, the importance of that to, to industry, uh, to global prices and to the European economy.
0: So Wolf, I want to I want to pivot to Europe here uh, a bit because, you know, Emily just said that they, uh, they are in this, Europeans are in as good of a position as they are going into the winter energy wise because they, you know, they filled the tanks essentially uh, at whatever cost. And that's like, you know, on the heels of a number of at whatever cost policies Europe has taken over recent years at whatever cost to deal with the pandemic. And you know, at whatever cost to deal with the debt crisis, still remains you know in in the not so distant uh, in the not, <clears throat> not so memory. So, let's talk about here the impact um, on the economy of Europe, and that therefore the impact on the on the domestic politics. I know you mentioned that there are no elections in the big countries this year, uh, but there are some elections um, uh, upcoming um, that might tell us something. So, give us a picture of the sort of the domestic, you know, political scene in in, in Europe writ large.
2: Yeah, going back to the big economies, I think the only the only one to watch out is basically France, whether President Macron decides to, solve, to dissolve the National Assembly, where he doesn't now control a majority. But in terms of the other countries, there is nothing in the agenda. Um, Europe is facing an economic recession. I think the big question on the macro level is whether the ECB will actually be able to succeed in taming inflation. Uh, we have seen again a move earlier today by the ECB raising rates again, but it's a huge bet they're taking because most of the different from the US, inflation in 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 Europe is very much a supply side story. Um, so there's a huge question mark here whether the ECB actually could make things worse or not. Um, so that is the first question. On On the political front, as you alluded, we have seen plenty of money being thrown around uh, uh, to try to uh, contain the cost of the energy, cost of living crisis. I think this is likely to continue, but obviously resources are becoming more scarce and uh, we still haven't seen anything in terms of wider EU-wide mechanism to deal with this, basically. And even, for example, on the energy front, this idea of joint EU Uh, acquisition of gas, we have seen no progress whatsoever on that front. So each country is pretty much left on its own and some countries like Germany got plenty of resources, others less. In terms of the electoral cycle, it is clear that a variety of incumbents who are facing election next year will struggle. That is true for the government in Poland in October, That is certainly true for Prime Minister Mitsotakis in Greece, where most likely we will need two consecutive parliamentary elections to create a parliamentary majority. Um, And that is also true for Sánchez in Spain, when they're going to go to elections sometime in November and December, uh, basically. The big one to watch um, is actually the one in Turkey, because uh, we have elections in Turkey, Greece and Cyprus, in the space of four months. Basically between February and June 2023, and that there is a risk that would mean more uh, more tensions in the East Med, and the Erdogan obviously is facing uh, the most difficult election ever. Is throwing anything that he can to trying to gain the upper edge, uh, and and that could make him certainly more unpredictable in terms of foreign policy, security policy in 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 the region. That is where we are here in terms of the the electoral cycle.
0: Okay, so can we turn to the U.K. here for a second, because um, obviously we devoted a lot of time on this program over the last year to it, because obviously. um, 2022 was a pretty noisy year uh, in in the U.K., one new monarch and several new prime ministers. Um, So uh, how does 2023? look? I mean, here again, we've got the one country in the G7 that is not at pre-pandemic GDP levels um and um you know and elections do loom not in 2023 but at some point in late 2024 i guess so talk about what you're expecting a quieter 2023 in the uk or what should we look at
2: uh certainly the uk is the sick man of europe in these days and is likely to remain for the foreseeable future uh, it is going to be the economy that as you mentioned has not recovered from the COVID pandemic Uh, but also is the economy that's going to be facing the more significant economic recession next year, uh, basically, and to make things worse, it might be got quieter on the political front here, uh, but the government doesn't really have much of a plan on how to tackle the economic challenges ahead. I think we have already seen plenty of kicking the can down the road, which is not particularly extraordinary for a conservative party, I think uh, even if nobody wants to contemplate the idea of challenging uh, the new Prime Minister Sunak, it is clear that his room for maneuver is somewhat limited at home, uh, mainly because of his own party, not because of the opposition. And the opposition front, I think, was interesting to see that, yes, the Labour Party is well ahead in the polls, but in reality, when uh, when you're looking uh, what's the position of the Labour Party on key issues, for example, Brexit, for example, taxation and so on, that remains, even on industrial action that is actually happening big time in in, uh, in the UK now, very different from continental Europe, the position of the Labour Party remains utterly unclear. So one of the questions will be whether an economic recession will actually help the Labour Party to gain more points and maybe to clarify a bit their agenda.
0: So, Emily, you know, a few minutes ago we were talking about the specifics of the energy picture um, relevant to the Russia story, but... Maybe we can we can pull back here a little bit and look at the um, at the bigger picture. Yeah, obviously, 2022 was characterized in in many ways by uh, sort of uh, changing the narrative on on energy in, in, in general. Even as we headed toward COP and we're talking about how this how this transition was was needed to be accelerated by um, uh, because of the war and the lingering pandemic effects and so on and so forth. And yet, all of a sudden. Things like coal and nuclear were right back in the uh, in the mix in a in a very big way. So you know, give us a, the sort of the bigger overview picture as you look at OPEC Plus um, and its constituents, the LNG market, which has been uh, a change. We had you know a new contract between the Chinese and the Qataris, the longest ever contract. But then even the Germans um, signing contracts that where they were previously loath to do for those types of uh, periods, given their uh, given their uh, the objectives that they need to meet. Um, and the time frame that they're on. So look, how about the big picture on the energy front?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think the the clearest thing that emerged this year was that energy transitions kind of took a backseat to energy security. And I think given the state of the world at the moment, this is mm-hmm. something that's, you know, likely to remain. There's obviously pressure, you know, following COP27 to kind of reinstate the importance of, of uh, energy transitions but you know i think what was clear from cop 27 also is that there's a huge disparity in terms of views on the phase out of hydrocarbons and that's going to continue to weigh on calculations that are made on pricing on supply demand balances um you know i think the other big theme that we're seeing um you know whether this is from cop 27 or or the ongoing right now cop 15 on biodiversity is that there's a clear lack of climate leadership And these multilateral institutions are are not kind of delivering the kind of of progress that that sort of targets and and, these frameworks would have anticipated. Um, What we're seeing instead is kind of interventionism increasingly in energy markets, um, where countries are looking at policies that favor their national interests. Uh, This is weighing in on some of the trade tensions we're seeing, whether that's U.S., China, or transatlantic issues around IRA. So I think, you know, this kind of lack of consensus, lack of leadership is really having sort of significant implications that are are sort of, it's hard to see sort of the way forward and how we pull ourselves out of sort of this this rut at the moment that's causing so much of the volatility. Um, In terms of oil markets, you know, I think this is obviously the ongoing greatest source of of volatility, and there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, political interference, I would say, in oil markets at the moment. Um, you know, I think prices are, are likely in 2023 to remain volatile. This is largely a reflection of uncertainty about the demand outlook, whether the ongoing Ukraine war, um, uncertainty about recession risks. You know, who will this hit? How long will the recession last? How how big would it actually be? Um, and you know, as a result of this kind of this uh, mismatch between supply demand expectations, and nowhere is this more pronounced than in the dynamic we're seeing between OPEC Plus and these sort of major consumer markets. Um, there's sort of a, a big, you know, difference in views about what a balanced market looks like. Uh, you know, to, to sort of very much oversimplify things, OPEC cares about a high oil price, and you know, the U.S., for instance, cares about a low pump price. And these are the kinds of issues that are, are really sort of driving, you know, this uncertainty and sort of this back and forth uh, between the two parties at the moment. In terms of the demand outlook, um, you know, we'll talk more about China, but you know, as China shifts from from its zero COVID to flattening the curve. You know, there's there's generally some expectation that this might look a bit like a J curve in terms of demand recovery in China. It's going to take a bit of time, you know, for for China to pull out of this and for the recovery to rebound. Um, but you know, overall, you know, I think I think the the sense of global recession is kind of containing any excitement about a potential recovery in in Chinese demand. Um, in terms of OPEC Plus, you know, we're going to continue to see this tit for tat. There's a lot of frustration about the fact that you know U.S. and EU Climate policies um, and energy transitions policies are somewhat con- contradictory. There's frustration with the U.S. shale revolution, kind of changing the the dynamics as, in global markets as the U.S. became a net exporter. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of frustration, in particular, that you know, where OPEC Plus was a cartel in the past, we've seen consumer behavior that's similar now with things like the SPR release, the price cap, et cetera. And this is really, you know, frustrating the OPEC Plus. Uh, formation quite significantly. So I think, you know, as I've mentioned, we are gonna see this kind of tit for tat of behaviors on on each end that are kind of only stoking some of the larger trade tensions that we're seeing at the moment. Um, Just a a few two quick kind of comments also to wrap up the, the greater energy picture, but you've touched on gas markets and the fact that, you know, there's all these new sort of LNG demand centers in Europe now. Um, The big thing that happened in 2022 that's continuing to play out in 2023 is this disruption to LNG markets where Europe is now the price setter. That's had significant global implications. And I think, you know, particularly in Asia, this is a very clear manifestation of the consequences of this. Um, You know, a lot of Asian players either are unwilling or unable to, to pay this higher price for LNG. Uh, they're they're making you know big decisions to switch to additional coal and to find sort of lower cost sources of fuel, much to sort of the the uh, you know disadvantage of an energy transitions narrative. Um, and then I think the last component of this is that with all of this sort of you know as as sort of kind of the key drivers of energy markets at the moment energy transitions is remaining there and it's not going away. And critical mineral supply chains, especially for batteries, are the important part of this narrative that everybody is is very closely paying attention to. China controls over 75% of the market for, for critical minerals essential to batteries. And the big sort of controversy is about, you know, the need potentially to shift the market more away from China. Again, this is driving national policies that sort of favor additional processing uh, alternative supply chains uh, friend friendshoring everybody's favorite term this year um but you know this is driving protectionist measures that are are threatening the effectiveness and op- optimization of supply chains you know which was a real advantage that sort of corporate profitability had been built on in recent decades um and you know what we're seeing is things like repower in the EU the uh, inflation reduction act in the US uh, the now the corporate carbon border adjustment mechanism in the UK these you know to my mind, are, are both counterproductive to sort of creating these, you know, effective supply chains, but they're also sort of more, more broadly pointing to the failures of, of climate goals. This, is, this needs to be kind of an everyone problem and an everyone solution, and instead we're seeing these very piecemeal kind of uh, prioritizations of national interest, and, and that's going to be a very complicated situation to maneuver both on the energy front and from sort of more of a holistic global trade perspective.
0: So I want to talk I to both in a minute here, just regarding uh, regarding China. But I want to, but, but but you know, you've talked about OPEC plus. We've obviously talked a lot about Russia. So inevitably, it brings up the Middle East. And and I want to kind of move pivot away a little bit from the energy picture specifically. Um, you know, Middle East has obviously been in the news a lot um, of late, uh, not just because of uh, of the World Cup, but really um, some of the uh, some of the geopolitics of uh, of Saudi Arabia in in particular. President Biden made his famous trip to to Saudi Arabia earlier with the uh, sort of uh, awkward fist bump with uh, the crown prince um, that uh, didn't really yield what the uh, U.S. wanted. Uh, And then Xi Jinping was just there last week and they really rolled out the red carpet, though we didn't necessarily get anything particularly meaningful necessarily out of that uh, out of that meeting. But talk about um, the state of the Middle East as you uh, as you see it right now. And also maybe throw in there one other kind of wild card that's out there earlier this year. It looked like there was a distinct possibility that the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, could be revived. That looks completely moribund now. But the other thing about uh, Iran that's kind of interesting is this ongoing, you know, um, set of protests um, that is uh, that seems to be confounding the uh, the theocracy and the uh, Revolutionary Guards into exactly how to uh, how to how to quash. So, how are you seeing the Middle East right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you hit the nail on the head. Like, I think there's a tendency when people talk about the Middle East to kind of focus on, you know, or conflate the Middle East with some of these key markets like the UAE and Saudi, which are hardly representative of of kind of the larger picture for for the Middle East at the moment. You know, we're seeing a, a big diversity in terms of economic outlooks, concern about the perceived withdrawal of U.S. security guarantees. Um, you know, and also, you know, now increasingly concerns about what the energy transition means, what sort of climate risks are there, food insecurity as well as a result of the Ukraine war. So I think there's, there's, there's dramatically different effects across each of these markets, but, I mean, a few of the highlights, you know, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, I think Saudi, more than anybody, is really playing the field right now. I think they're disappointed by the U.S. and the relationship. Uh, the Biden visit didn't sort of yield the the sort of um, progress that I think the Saudis were hoping for, and they're exploring options. Um, you know, obviously Russia has some immediate importance because it's sort of revitalized OPEC plus a bit and, and sort of lent some support to that mission to keep oil prices high. Um, you know, President Xi Jinping's visit to, to Saudi Arabia this past week you know, I think it, it yielded a lot of agreements, but none of them with sort of real substance at the moment. You know, it would take more negotiation to get some of these deals over the line. Um, I think it was as much about sort of the optics of the U.S. seeing China there, of you know, Saudi proving it has options, um, and you know, they're they're trying to reinforce a strategic partnership they announced six years ago, and you know, this is still sort of the state of of relations. You know, in spite of that, so. I think there's not sort of much concern. And, you know, I think the the biggest issue is that Saudi Arabia has really benefited from the high oil prices. A lot of their economic growth and diversification strategy is predicated on these Giga projects that are very important to MBS. Um, but in terms of, you know, the actual capability, know-how, um, financing, the West is going to be a critical player in sort of making those projects a reality. And I think this is where, China could be important, Russia less so, and so that kind of balance, particularly when it comes to security interests, tends to favor the West. Um, quick remark on Egypt because I think that's also, you know, an important uh, source of volatility at the moment. They got the IMF deal over the line, but that also had serious implications for currency devaluation, higher prices on things like like fuel, um, debt servicing as well, actually, which is one of the most problematic areas, food. Uh, President Sisi has requested kind of leniency, but instead we're seeing foreign governments just kind of, you know, sick of, of you know, foreign creditors being sick of, of kind of the situation there, you know, trying to find sort of sources of collateral, and they're tired of supporting the government and the military there. So I think, you know, this is in you know increasingly looking less optimistic for Sisi, who was really, really trying to kind of turn things around in Egypt and, and sort of create this new narrative under, under his leadership. And finally, to round things out, Iran. Um, You know, as you said, I think the failure of the Iranian deal is probably one of the biggest risks in the the Middle East at the moment, Um, you know, especially because Iran tends to exhibit more bad behavior when these deals fall through, especially through proxy groups, of which it has plenty scattered throughout the Middle East. Um, You know, on top of that, we're seeing the Ayatollah Khamenei ailing now. Um, There's concerns about succession with him. Uh, add protests on top of that and you know, there's really a number of, of sort of pressure points that are growing inside of Iran at a time when you know They didn't get the deal across the line and, and you know, they don't sort of have much other motivation to cooperate at the moment but I think Iran is always a top contender to to upset the the apple cart in in the region And I think that's probably the hot spot um, of as we we go into sort of a a more difficult year with volatile energy prices you know concerns about recession i think iran is really going to be kind of the top concern about regional stability
0: okay so we've got 10 minutes now to cover the rest of the world so we're going to the lightning (laughs) round so wolf i know i don't want to spend too much time on on china because you know uh as uh, the audience knows uh we have gabe uh will dow and paul hanley on here all the time because china's so dynamic obviously but it is worth talking about here uh, for a few minutes just because you know, we've gotten through the 20th Party Congress. Xi Jinping has, um, has kind of run the table. He's in complete, uh, has been in complete control, except for now we've got this extremely messy um, and potentially uh, very dislocating um, uh, 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 coming out from zero, uh, zero COVID. Um, what do you kind of see right now on the uh, China front yourself and as well as, as well as paraphrasing gay?
2: Yeah, I think it's. Uh, if I have to sum it up in one sentence, it might get worse before it gets better. Meaning, the exit from the zero COVID is likely to be difficult, somewhat chaotic. We're going to start questioning more and more the numbers coming out from China in terms of infection death rates and so on. Um, and that is going to have a it's going to have potential impact uh, in the early days of this exit on the on the economic output. On the positive side, I think. Uh, one area certainly the, the government will be focusing more and more on the economy on economic growth specifically and i think they're going to be a bit more pragmatic in comparison to what we have seen the last few years with these kind of battles against certain sectors of the economy and so on so i think that would be on on uh, the, the, the the kind of on the positive side but certainly in the short term we should expect uh, a dislocation basically
0: What do you think on the uh, sort of on on the geopolitical side? I mean, one of the interesting dynamics here in the second half of the year is that, you know, as Emily pointed out, Xi Jinping met with Putin again in Samarkand and kind of uh, kind of chastised a little bit on the side. Then, of course, uh, he went to the G20. He met with Biden. um, He's now been to the uh, the Middle East. He seems to be on this this international tour. I don't know if I'd call it a charm offensive, per se, but um, or if it's just like I got to get Get out of China because it's a it's a messy domestic political situation there. But how do you see Xi's reengagement with the, uh, the with the world?
2: I I I, I, I think it's uh, it is not just about six traveling more, but also is receiving more guests back home as well. I think there is a, a determined drive um, to uh, reconnect, basically after more than two years uh, where you know they've been retrenching themselves back home. Um, have we seen any significant deal, significant policy concession or opening? Absolutely not. I think right now, as, as you kind of alluded, that is more, more than anything else is some sort of charming offensive, trying to rebuild some ties around uh, without maybe a concrete plan on what they are actually trying to achieve.
0: And so one of the hallmarks of this year as well, coming on the heels of a war, uh, of, of pandemic, as well as the deteriorating relations between economic relations between the U.S. and and, and China, has been you know supply chain um, management, right, and supply chain diversification, um, and 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 so you know for for a lot of uh, for a lot of people that means opportunity in Southeast uh, Southeast Asia, um, but of course a lot of companies have devoted a lot less time to understanding Southeast Asia than they have devoted and invested in in. China. We know the complications for the big players, the apples and the large car manufacturers and the like of diversifying away from China. But for many that can be more nimble um, or don't have as historic a foothold in China, um, perhaps there's optionality. But there's risks in, in the rest of Asia as, uh, as well. We've got elections in Thailand and Cambodia this year. Um, you know, the Japanese and South Korean uh, leaders are under severe political challenge. How, how are we looking at the rest of the, uh, the Asia region?
2: Uh, well, on paper, its the outlook would look, as long as the political the political side is concerned, would look somewhat uh, easy, meaning the only country, big economy in the region that has got elections, as you alluded, is Thailand here. On the other way around, that is actually, I think, would be misleading, meaning, we're still going to see the ripple effect of the election in Malaysia recently. And also at the end of this year, at the end of twenty three, excuse me, we're going to start seeing the, the nomination for the presidential candidates in Indonesia, which is a big election in 2024. So politics would be right and center. I think Thailand remains as kind of tradition now, um, the biggest risk, uh, meaning that we, we have the usual players. Um, going against each other on one side, the military basically, and then we have the daughter of former Prime Minister uh, Shinatawa, Shinatawa basically leading in the polls, so, so that could lead to a bit of a political deadlock and potentially turmoil in, 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 in Thailand here. As for Indonesia, it would be important to see who are the presidential candidates, because there are some concerns about Indonesia shifting a bit more towards nationalism, potentially sectarianism as well. So the choice of the candidate here will give us a bit of color on that story when we start looking into the presidential election in 2024. In terms of Japan and South Korea, the two, the Prime Minister Kishida and the South Korean President uh, Yoon, they are facing the same situation. They are both extremely unpopular at home. There is not much an alternative to either of them. I think Kishida will try to appease uh, the more right-wing parties, uh, part of the function within uh, the LDP, with concession. For example, the huge thing by Ike in terms of defense spending is a major concession there, um, and the, 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 cha- the, cha- the challenge for him could be later this, later next year with the local election and see whether the polling which is now in the mid30s will go below the 20s and that then his position could become at risk. but for for the time being I think Kishida is kind of unloved but is, I think he's gonna going to be moved. In terms of South Korea very quickly it's not just a difficult domestic picture uh, for, for for the president with the economy basically facing more challenges. And most likely the tax reform that is trying to push forward will have to be largely watered down, if not sidelined. But also North Korea would be more of a potentially of a noisy story. We have seen significant missile tests over the last couple of months. We might see the nuclear test next year. And that would be the first one since 2017. And obviously it's got an impact not just on South Korea, but on the world geopolitical setting in the region.
0: All right, so let's just jump right across the Pacific here, real quickly. Now, Latin America, there's a lot of potential stories out there, but the big, the big three, as I see it, uh, are Lula assuming power in uh, in Brazil. There's an Argentine election later in the year, and of course, the the question of a sort of institutional strength in the in the face of the onslaught from the Mexican President AMLO. Um, how how are we looking at uh, Latin America going into 23?
2: I think if you look at the macro picture there, there is all this talk about the new pink tide in Latin America. We've seen lots of leftist governments taking over. The the Argentinian election in October would be an interesting test because in our view, it is not necessarily a pink wave, uh, but it actually could be a wave against incumbent. So it would be interesting to see whether the Peronistas will be able to uh, stay in office or not. That election will give us a bit of a sense uh, in uh, um, whether the pink tide is significant. If the pink tide is actually based, it's true, I think there is a significant difference from this one to the one we saw in the early 2000s. Early 2000 was was much more favorable environment for leftist government. There was more money around. There was a commodity super cycle. It was easier for them to deliver on the promises than during the election campaign. This cycle will be much more difficult. So even if it is pink tide for Latin America, I think it will be a shorter one. In terms of Lula, uh, Lula is coming into office in January. He has indicated already who's going to be the finance minister. That was not particularly positive for financial markets. On the other hand, I think Lula has recognized that uh, he needs to have somebody who can negotiate very hard with Congress, where he's going to have to put together a difficult coalition there. So compromises will be basically uh, uh, needed would be interesting to see in terms of the administration, uh, in terms of policy departure on the environmental front, whether it would be able to make a significant mark and break from what uh, the previous administration was doing or not.
0: Okay, so finally, because you're, the, you're covering both Europe and Latin America for us today, this Sunday, France v. Argentina, who wins?
2: I think uh, as an Italian, I will I will side with Argentinians, but I'm afraid that France will prevail, and that will make will make most Italians particularly unhappy.
0: Clearly, still better that Italy wasn't even at the World Cup this year. But okay, Emily, let's quickly jump across the Atlantic then and finish up with uh, with Africa. A couple big things: we have a Nigerian election coming up in tw- uh, early 2023, but the debt sustainability and default potential issues are uh, is rampant um, in Africa at the moment.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that's you know for for our team, that's the biggest risk in in Africa. Looking at twenty twenty three, is the possible wave of sovereign defaults. Many of the economies are grappling with uh, weakening economic recovery, with rising food and energy prices, already high public debt. The war on Ukraine has exacerbated this for many. Uh, there are twenty five countries that uh, are already facing severe debt strains, and these are you know fairly critical economies. If you think about it, from DRC to Ethiopia, Mozambique, Kenya. So, you know, I think this is is really the risk to keep an eye on. We do see consensus building about the need for comprehensive debt relief, but there's also a wide range of creditors and these range from, you know, multilateral banks to commercial lenders and even individual countries like like Russia and China. So, I think given this diversity of views and interests, this is, you know, probably going to slow the negotiations a bit on on how all of this plays out. The main tool meanwhile is going to remain the G20's common framework for debt restructuring. Uh, And, you know, I think it also would be remiss not to acknowledge that, you know, the debt vulnerabilities are increasingly tying in with, you know, things like the war in Ukraine, food security, the climate crisis, given a number of um, climate-driven natural disasters we've seen this year from flooding in in Nigeria and South Africa to, you know, severe drought in the Horn of Africa. So that sort of comprehensively raises a lot of questions of concern and about how this gets resolved. Um, and you know, the Nigerian elections are are gonna be kind of the other big, big ticket item to watch. Um, they have both presidential and general elections in February and March, respectively. Um, interestingly, in the presidential elections, none of the three main contenders has taken a clear lead. So I think the outcome is really likely to come down to the wire. Um, you know, I think an interesting thing that that our Nigeria analyst has pointed out is that you know, historical voting maps could be redrawn. Uh, faced with kind of both this three-horse race, unprecedented combinations of individuals um, as as running partners and candidates, uh, and the surge in in new young voters. So, given the sort of importance of you know the Nigerian economy as the largest economy in Africa, and a hotly contested election on the line, I think you know this is a really a big a big story to watch um, in the new year.
0: So we will be watching all of these stories uh, in the political risk uh, advisory practice at uh, Teneo, at and we'll cover them on this program um, as uh, as warranted. But I want to just close by saying that, you know, as we contemplate the risks and opportunities before us in, in, in 2023, I think it's worth considering the overall global context. And to remember that the US role uh, here in designing and championing and perpetuating uh, the evolving global system the uncertainties of a rising but maybe not inexorable China, the risks of of the energy transition devoid of any kind of centralized design or leadership, and this disruption by technology that's impacting the very, very nature of societal and governmental relations, all of these things are in flux right now. So I think that a a clear-eyed assessment of the global operating environment has never been more critical. Um, and just remember that the incentives for political actors, be they global leaders or voters or people in the street, to take actions against their uh, perceived economic interests should not be underestimated. We see it time and time again. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at teneoinsights at taneo.com. See you next time.